Professor Laura Empson. And I'm David Morley. And this is Leading Professional People. In this podcast, we bring together cutting-edge theory and first-hand experience to offer in-depth insights into the unique challenges of leading professional organisations. So in this episode, we're going to be exploring leadership in a time of crisis. We're going to be talking to my long-term friend and colleague, Wim de Jong, global senior partner of Alan and Overy, someone I've personally spent time in the trenches with, to find out his experience of leading through crisis, including the pandemic. So at the start of the pandemic, back in March, I got in touch with one of my clients. He's the leader of a a very successful professional services firm, not in the UK, uh, just to ask him how things were going. It was interesting because he wasn't there, but he sent me an email a few minutes later. And in this email, he said, David, the expression coming up for air no longer works. There is no air left in the atmosphere. And he went on to tell me how he was having to make decisions incredibly rapidly on things he'd never even have to think about before, things that were absolutely not popular with his partners. And he felt terrible about that. But he concluded, I have to do this because it's about ensuring the survival of the firm. Yeah. And one of the reasons he'd never had to make those kinds of difficult decisions before is because his firm was the leading firm in its sector. That's true. And I think that if when this crisis hit, if you're a leader who'd never had to face a major crisis before, and I think he had not, then that was a massive shock to the system. And there is something very particular about the COVID crisis, because it's not just an economic crisis, but it's a deeply personal crisis. And it's hitting us on every single dimension. If you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I mean, people for the first time, are actually really getting frightened about food and more basic personal things even than that. I mean, I actually found myself Googling what did people use before lavatory paper existed. Because you couldn't get any. Well, because I was worried I wouldn't get any. (laughs) Well, what's the answer then, Laura? Well, I went out and gathered leaves. I mean, we are threatened on multiple dimensions simultaneously. And it's natural in a crisis, you want to be protected and made safe. And it takes us back to childhood. And we kind of look for the big, strong daddy and the warm, soft mummy. And that's why we have this hero model of leadership in organisations. This has been really the, the, the core foundational principles of the way in which people have understood leadership for a long time that the leader is there to provide direction and strength and, and drive, but also also reassurance and comfort. But this hero model of leadership has never applied in professional services firms. You most manifestly are not their hero. No, I get that. I think your colleagues will very quickly cut you down to size if you start behaving like you think you're their hero. That's the last thing that people want. But they do want a strong leader. Well, yes. And I mean, my clients sometimes get hung up on what they read in popular management text about being heroic and visionary leaders, but they have enough self-awareness to know that really isn't who they are. And I think one of the reasons this happens is because in my experience, actually really egotistical people are far less likely to get elected to senior leadership roles in professional organisations. So they just don't naturally see themselves as heroic leaders. So the big question is then, how do you respond as a leader when you've never thought of yourself as a hero? You're responsible for some deeply frightened people at a time when you too are also frightened. Yeah, I I think from my own experience, I think there's a dawning realisation, a sudden realisation that all eyes are on you and that can cause people to freeze sometimes. 
in normal times, I think you probably just filter that out. You just don't think about that. You can't behave like you're being watched all the time. But in a crisis, you feel that more acutely. Everybody is looking to you and they're saying, what's the plan? But at that point, you don't necessarily have a plan. That's quite a big admission to make, David. (laughs) I never have a plan. (laughs) Well, I think in a crisis, you're making it up as you go along. But at some point, you have to figure out how do you deal with the, get over the immediacy of the issues that you're dealing with and figure out a longer term strategy for taking things forward. So I want to talk to Wim de Jong today because he and I are veterans of the global financial crisis. We were partners in crime, I suppose, at that time. I took over as global senior partner of the firm and he became global managing partner of the firm early in 2008. And we were only just beginning to get to know each other and figuring out how we would work together with each other when the global financial crisis hit. We'd only been in office, I think, less than six months when that happened. I want to see how he's managed the current pandemic and how it differs from the global financial crisis that we dealt with together. Wim, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. It's always a pleasure, Laura. I guess the first question for you is, you know, how different does this COVID crisis feel to you as a leader compared to when you were dealing with the banking crisis, when you first took over as managing partner at Allen & Overy? Well, I've been joking with my partners, actually, that each time I get elected to some kind of crisis hitting the market, it was uh, the financial crisis first time, last time it was Brexit, and now we've got COVID-19. So I guess I'm used to um, dealing with them early, early on in my term. I think some crises have different aspects, but actually some aspects are always the same. So when a crisis hits, actually, you don't know what the impact on the business will be. So what do you do is, you know, plan for the short term first. And I think the focus is on two things. One is uh, keep the teams together. And the second one is uh, stay close to your clients. And in order to be able to do that, you have to take cash preservation measures. Um, And so the cash preservation is, is something that I think you need to do basically to buy time to make judgment on what the longer term impact is. So that, I think, is a common feature to basically all crises. And then beyond that, I think crises are different. Um, And this one is um, different from the global financial crisis. And and I think this crisis actually plays to our strengths because, in a way, the distance between um, where I sit in my little village in Belgium and London is the same as between this place and Hong Kong or Singapore or Indonesia. So, in in a way, although we we don't see each other, actually, the distance to everybody is exactly the same. So you have to, I think, adapt the the way of communicating, the way of interacting with people. And so, uh, you know, use completely different communication techniques, which is something you didn't need in the GFC. Just thinking back in the financial crisis, you know, what sticks in your mind is that you took from that crisis that you brought into this, in terms of how a leader of a professional services firm should deal with these crises? A professional services firm, you cannot force change. It evolves by evolution rather than revolution. A crisis is the one exception where actually you can make decisions that you just force through. Not any decision, but decisions where people accept that actually some action needs to be taken. 
And in booming markets, you wouldn't be able to to drive those decisions through. But in a crisis, you can. You know, our experience back in the day, I mean, I don't think there was a lot of performance management in, in generally in the legal industry before 2009. Um, we took that crisis to uh, deal with issues that actually should have been dealt with uh, you know, the years before that. And so that's where you can actually say, and now we're going to do this. And on this crisis, and there's the similarity, and, and we had, um, let's say, our working capital management in terms of billing collection was, uh, to say it mildly, average in terms of the industry. You know, cash, I mean, we were not in trouble, of course, because we never borrow any money, we didn't borrow any money. But our cash position could have been better. And when a crisis like this hits, that's where you can say, and now, guys, you know, we are going to build and collect like it should be done, and we're going to increase the capital. You'd never get that change done outside of a crisis. But we took that decision, took two weeks. Partners voted because they needed to vote on it. They voted on it in two weeks. And the cash position in the firm has, you know, changed dramatically it was okay now we're in a good position and that's what i mean that allows us basically to see what's happening in the market to see what the impact is on the business and frankly avoid short-term panic motivated decisions and so that's the type of decision that in normal circumstances in a professional service firm you could never revolutionize you could never force that through but when there's a crisis like that you can do it so this is kind of never let a good crisis go to waste. You know, sitting where you're sitting through these two crises, what's really been different about that? Because, you know, when you're not in crisis, you've got to go through a long period of consultation to get people on board and so on. And when you are in crisis, you you can cut that. There's more insecurity. I think partnership typically is in need of stronger leadership when a crisis hits. And you have to show it. I mean, you shouldn't overplay it, of course, but you have to show confidence, leadership, and action. In times of crisis, that is what a partnership expects uh, from you. When there's no crisis, they, they expect you to consult. So your default mode to drive change is consult, uh, build consensus, and go slowly to a decision. In times of crisis, it's actually the opposite logic, where the, the partnership expects you to make decisions with a view to preserve the business and, and actually to feel safe. I mean, there's a psychological element to it. And I think that's where your leadership style has to change between a crisis and normal management. You shouldn't overdo it, of course, uh, but show some confidence in terms of this is the action we're going to take and then we'll see. And actually... That's what people expect in this type of circumstance. Wim, I wanted to pick up on something you said about people need you to be a certain way for them to feel safe. I really want to focus on you know, the people side, the human side of leading in a crisis. When we started the interview, you talked initially about you know, getting the cash position right. And throughout this interview, you've been great at laying out some of the, the foundations of, of keeping the firm safe financially. But obviously, your firm is made up of thousands of people, sometimes very insecure people. So I think probably we're all feeling pretty, pretty fragile at the moment. How do you help them through that? To what extent do you see that as your role? Do you kind of delegate that role to other people? Who's really taking care of the heart and soul of the, the partners of Alan Overy? And, and who's taking care of everybody else well it's a shared responsibility right but i think my role is to make sure it happens 
um, there are clearly way more mental health issues uh, than there than there were before. Um, and actually, we're in, uh, you know this, this is going to be a long winter actually for a lot of people, and so we need to you know look after our people. And so that happens at uh, smaller group levels. Uh, we try to share best practice. I think what the other thing is from where I sit uh, is important is to make sure that. Uh, People kind of know that we're all in the same position, that our position is not worse than the one of our competitors. And what, what I've done as an example, but this is not the only way, is I write uh, home blogs, to, so just about my life and, and the struggles that I have. Two of my children had COVID-19 uh, two weeks ago. You know, I just put that on. Yeah, but they're, I mean, they're fine now, but, it, but it's a scare, right? It's a scare. And it was the first weekend in seven months I didn't see them, so I was bloody lucky not to... Not to not to catch it, but but so I, I put that in writing. So these are my struggles. These are this is the experience I have, and so kind of share the burden. Kind of you're not alone in this. Uh, but, you know, I have it. You have it. We all we all have our struggles and our issues and and our life. And it's actually amazing how many reactions I got on the last one. I had about 160 individual emails, and actually it's a way to reach. Uh, people in the organization you otherwise would never reach. You'd never reach them. That's really interesting. That's kind of showing a vulnerability. Yeah, and give people access to your personal life. And so it's amazing. The stories I get back is absolutely amazing. Um, so that's one one element. So we're in this together. You're not you're not alone. We all have our challenges. The feedback I get back actually gives me a very good insight in what the issues are that people struggle with. And there's quite a difference between, you know, younger people, uh, housing in a city or families with small children compared to, you know, people like me at the kind of, who live in more comfortable circumstances, of course. Um, So that, I think, um, is one way to kind of uh, make sure that people don't feel alone. And I suppose that's actually going to be one big difference from when you and David were working together on the banking crisis. Well, I mean, you immediately used the phrase mental health. I mean, I don't think you'd have been talking about mental health quite as frankly back in 2008, 2009. I mean, obviously, though, we did all have mental health issues back then as well. So I think there's something now about partly because the nature of the conversation has moved on, but also because this is such a global crisis. There's no point anyone pretending that everything's all right because we just know they were delusional. I think what's interesting as well, Wim, is that you talk about the need to show, I think you said, confidence, leadership, action in a crisis. So to demonstrate strong leadership, but to combine that with this sort of sense of sharing your own vulnerability, you can go too far with that, right? You can overdo that. If you say it's all going to be fine and don't worry, it's not credible. Yeah. Yeah, or if you spend the whole time emoting and <laughs> it doesn't work either. So it's a fine balance. It's kind of, you know, I am actually convinced we will be fine because we're all in this in the same boat. And, in, you know, in terms of our organization, you know, we are used to working teams uh, across the board. So in virtual teams, actually. So th- that in, in a way is a benefit. I think I am still convinced we have the most collaborative culture of the industry. So again, that is an asset in this type of crisis. Can I tell our people that it's all going to be fine and we'll be all happy and, and salaries will increase forever? No. You know, I'm honest about my worries about the business as well. You know, there's uncertainty, there's uh, there's shifts in the industry. I mean, we had a lot of work in the airline industry and airports. You know, of course, there's a big shift in there. So I think there's a fine balance to be found between, you know, giving confidence and calm people down, but at the same time, not overpromise in terms of, 
you know, what the outcome will be and share concerns, but uh, demonstrate uh, you know, there's a silver line. I mean, every crisis has an end, right? And this one will have an end as well. And there is always silver lining. Actually, there are there is huge opportunity in a crisis like this always because in times of change, you have to look at the opportunity, not at the problems. And when you look at the opportunity, you can get out at the other end much stronger than your competitors. And when what do you do to keep yourself strong? I mean, you need to be strong and positive for the firm. What do you do when you're feeling weak and negative? I jump on the bike and I go for a bike ride. Yeah, I knew he was <laughs> going to say true. that. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, I, I do. Obviously, I live on, you know, at the seaside in Belgium. David has been here, so he knows where I live. Uh, it's an amazing environment. Uh, I mean, outdoor activity, change of mind, um, and I have trouble with something else, like cycling against the wind here. I can tell you, you you don't think about all the other problems in in the world. And actually, it energizes me, it gives me... um, And actually, I did... um, I never took saunas before, and I did install a sauna at the beginning of the the crisis, and that actually has, you know, is fantastic. So, you know, late at night, I often, uh, rather than people switching on television i kind of uh, take sauna jump in cold water afterwards and uh, and that gives me <laughs> gives me quite a bit of energy i think it's different for everybody right and i'm lucky i mean my children are you know are, are amazing they i mean i've got five sons they've they are you know here i mean it gives life in the house right uh, and then uh, of course i see way less people than than typical but i've got a few close friends that we socially distance and these days outdoors actually so i i went to see my siblings actually yesterday we went in the park you know all with masks on very far away from each other my sister is in hospital so we went to visit her you know she was in a wheelchair and we were all uh, around it so we you know you kind of uh, make the best of it actually i met a friend of mine uh, who's uh, here in in town and he said actually it's it's not a it's not a bad thought you know why are people moaning we're actually living the life that our parents used to live you know locally we discovered the village we do nice walks uh, people didn't use them I in previous generation didn't used to fly around uh, and actually enjoyed each other company so you're basically moving back to a village type of life did you see any um light at the end of the tunnel because it's a bit difficult to see when this kind of particular crisis is going to come to an end or this phase it's hard to know exactly when i don't think it's going to end before the summer of next year and i think we'll go back to a different normal first probably in the summer or just after the summer next year um, and then gradually i think we'll start to live in a different i work in a in a different way and actually does it make sense for people to fly around for 20 euros from brussels to barcelona and spend a week there i don't think so there's anything that is dramatically changing. I actually think all of the change that was happening anyway is just accelerated. You know, less flying around, working from home, um, reliance on technology. All these things were happening. They're just accelerated by this crisis. You know, cleaning out some zombie companies in every industry, it's just accelerated by this. It needs to happen every five or ten years anyway. And this crisis just makes that happen. And the same goes for every industry. In the legal industry, you have survivors and you have those who who will go under. But that is not necessarily a bad thing, I think. Um, So there'll be a better balance uh, once, you know, I think after the summer we'll you know, people will be looking at two or three days in, in, in the office and actually the function of the office will change. I think it will become a meeting place. I mean, why would you have to come to the office to draft 
an agreement that uh, on a, on a laptop you take from home and with your phone that you take from home. It just it just doesn't make sense. Why don't you do just do that at home? I think the office will become a, a hub where you meet people or where you have to work in teams, um, and actually that is what it should be. Um, so I, I I think again. I think that's changed for the better because it allows people to have a more balanced life. That can you be both uh, a good peacetime leader and a good wartime leader? I think so. You have to adapt in terms of style. You have to adapt. Uh, but you have to be very aware what type of style and leadership you take on when, I think. But, you know, peacetime change is sometimes very frustrating because it takes bloody forever. And uh, a leader that has too much patience probably is not a, is not, not a leader. But I do think leadership is impossible without followership in normal circumstances. And so you have to have the patience um, in peacetime uh, and make sure that you have the followership for your ideas and, and the way you think the business should be moving forward. In times of crisis, the followership is already there. It's waiting for you <laughs> to take action. So I, I think it's uh, it's a different balance. But ultimately, I don't think you have to change leadership. In, uh, you know, when when there's peace or war. And I think something that I'm starting to sense is is quite distinctive about this crisis. We tend to distinguish between peace and war, but what we really mean is peace and battle. And there's the incredible adrenaline surge you've got in a battle situation. Yeah. Um, and that was really the beginning of the COVID crisis. What you're now in is the extended war where there isn't necessarily an immediate battle to give you energy, but there is just week after week of dull... It's a long grind. Yeah. This, this, and that's the difference with the GFC, actually. This is a long grind and... The challenge, I think, for our people, and that's the message I'm trying to get across now, is, you know, keep going at it. I mean, be proactive. I mean, it's like running a marathon and you're at mile 17 or 18. That's where you win the race. Um, but you have to keep going and not uh, dial it down in terms of energy and commitment and proactivity. I mean, um, what's the downside of taking action you know maybe it's been useless but that's the downside right? what's the downside of calling a client even if you don't have anything to tell him just pick up the phone um, and you know maybe nothing comes out of it so what I mean you've lost five or ten minutes what's the point and I think the the challenge especially with the winter ahead of us is to keep those energy levels and that commitment up because it's been a long grind already for most of our people and it's not over there's another six months probably um, as, a, as a minimum ahead of us. Wim, thank you so much. I hope you haven't uh, scared all those people who don't have your phenomenal athletic skills or their own private sauna, an icy pool. But more than anything, thank you so much for taking the time. And yeah, I hope we get a chance to interview you in the next series about being a peacetime leader. <laughs> thank you, Wim. Thank you. Thank you very much, Wim. Thank you both. So, Laura, what was it that really struck you about what Wim said? Well, I was really intrigued. Um, when we asked him about how to deal with the crisis, he led off on the topic of managing cash. And as he was talking about it, I was thinking, is he actually going to talk about people at all? So I asked him the question directly. And actually, the answer he gave us was great. But what really struck me was the order in which he answered the question. You know, first you sort out the cash. Yeah, and I think we I would agree with him on that. It's no good being empathetic as a leader if the firm is going down the plug hole. 
The first priority is to steady the ship. You absolutely have to be ruthless about the way you prioritise the issues that you're dealing with in a crisis. Then you can deal with the people. Yeah, and I guess that's what troubled your client, the, the one you mentioned at the start. He was used to being an empathetic leader and he had to become a very different kind of leader in order to save the firm in the immediate crisis. So Wim talked about different styles of leadership at different times. And I don't know if you realise this, but he was outlining the, the contingency theory of leadership. And the problem is a lot of leaders have only got one style. And they, they're the ones who perhaps move from one firm to another because they can do one thing well. And that might work in the corporate sector. But professional service firms don't helicopter people in from outside. And unless their leaders screw up, the expectation is that they'll stay in post for a reasonable amount of time. But given the nature of the world and the economy, that implies that professional firm leaders need to be particularly flexible. Or if they can't be flexible, they need to know who to go to for help. This is really what I mean when I talk about the leadership diet, how you can bring in two or more people together with complementary skills, in a sense, like you and Wim. Yeah, I think it's clear that, um, to me, the sign of a good leader in the context of professional services is, in fact, in any context, is they, they know the skills and the strengths that they have, and more importantly, that they don't have. And I think the best leaders, they... You, you see them instinctively surrounding themselves with people who can uh, add skills that they don't have or enhance skills that they're not very good at. But a lot of leaders of professional firms don't do it instinctively. And it's up to their colleagues to step up and surround them and say, in a sense, to have a formal intervention, to have a potentially difficult conversation with them about you know, what they're doing well, but also what they're doing badly and, and, and what can be done about it. One of the things that really struck me from what Wim said, and I, I know Wim very well, was that his willingness to, if you like, share a bit of vulnerability with the firm. That's not typically what leaders think they have to do, particularly in a crisis. They think they have to be Superman, Superwoman, a million miles away from showing any kind of emotion. Um, there's this idea that you have to be this sort of emotionless detached robot kind of thing. I particularly wouldn't expect to hear from Wim that he was willing to share his vulnerability. Wim is a tough guy. I, I know that in a good way. And here he is openly sharing with the whole firm how he's dealing with the pressure in his own life. I think what, what you see from the things that he said was that it became a really key leadership tool in the ways enabling people to connect with him. He's hearing directly from them, which is really, really powerful. Yeah, but when he talked about all the emails he got back from people who, who, who'd been triggered by his openness and honesty, I thought, yeah, but how on earth has he got the time to read all these emails? And I, I think expectations of leaders are starting to change. Um, and this model we've been talking about earlier, this heroic model, this, this invulnerable model of leadership – really belongs to an earlier time, but the um, the writing on leadership and indeed our own ideals around leadership haven't quite caught up with that yet. I would say you have to be successful in flexing your style. And I'd also say that leaders, uh, and this is, I think, certainly true in professional service firms, uh, have to be able to display emotion at appropriate times. I don't mean emoting every five minutes and crying when something goes wrong, but the idea of sharing your feelings with people in a managed way, I suppose, I think is a good one for leaders. Yes. 
But it's not just about knowing when to be strong, knowing when to be vulnerable. It's also about being sensitive to the changes in the balance of power within the firm because there is so much that's in flux. Yes, and I think that's true. Definitely in a crisis, you kind of have permission you're, you're, you're expected, in fact, to take the action that's necessary to get the firm through that crisis. And it may be that there's some collateral damage caused along the way. Uh, it's probably inevitable. So how do you repair that after that action has been taken? Not just knowing about how to be decisive, but when do you be empathetic as well, because I, I don't think it's going to be a good model and you're not going to be a successful leader just by being um, very uh, good at dealing with the crisis, but not kind of then adjusting your style when things have begun to get better and people want something different in their style. How would you become more accommodating? Yeah, but looking back to the banking crisis and the series of other crises that that we've had to deal with in, in recent years... I think in the past, crises have been, it's been easier to calibrate the pace of your response. Because we're what we've been talking about all the way through this podcast is some really finely tuned and nuanced judgments. But right now, it's particularly challenging to make those judgments because no one can predict the pace and duration of the crisis, which is why it's all the more important to, to, to pace yourself, to recognise that you need to keep handling the crisis day-to-day, long after your initial surge of adrenaline has been used up. Well, that's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you again to Wim de Jong for joining us today. And please remember to subscribe, rate and review Leading Professional People wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to you joining us again. Bye.